Good morning, everybody. My name is Craig Cody. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Man, this place always has felt cavernous. I feel like I'm way back here and you're way out there and with everybody gone for spring break, it's like, hello, hello, hello. It's, I, I'm thankful to be here, though. <laughs> everybody who's gone, they're off. Uh, there's a big group of people, actually, that are out doing a missions trip with crew in Guatemala. They're providing filters, water filters, for people who don't have drinkable water, and in the process they're sharing the gospel. Really cool thing. Really excited that our church is involved with that in some different ways, so be praying for them as you think about that. Today, the life of David, we've been at it for several weeks now. Um, King David, often viewed as Israel's greatest king, and way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, as we're diving in today, um, what we're going to remember here is that at, all the way back there in chapter 16 is that God chose David to replace a disobedient king named Saul. Yet, up to this point in the story, though we've gone many years later, there's still no kingdom for David. And what's happening now is that kingdom is about to happen. He trusted God all along the way that God made a promise to him that one day the kingdom would be his. One day that would come to fruition. And faith now is about to turn to sight. Our text today is 2 Samuel 1. If you don't have your Bible open there, I would invite you to do that right now. 2 Samuel chapter 1. And David now is going to begin his ascent to the throne. We're going to look at what David first did as he starts this ascent to the throne. His first act toward taking over the rule of the kingdom. And the first thing that David does is he laments. He lamented the death of Saul and his son, Jonathan. Also a long time ago, way back in, on July 24th, 2004, uh, my wife Darcy and I got married. We got married in Wheaton, Illinois, and we, which is up in the suburbs of Chicago, if you don't know where that is. Uh, and on the day of our wedding, we had, we had a big wedding. It was a lot of fun. It was obviously one of the greatest days of my life. We, we had the wedding, we went to this reception in a big reception hall at a church. It was attached to a church. The church let us use the reception hall and just pure joy. I mean, we kind of characterizing the joy. We, um, as we entered into the reception hall where everyone was gathered waiting for us to get there, you guys know that moment where the bride and groom come in. Um, my wife's maiden name is McCracken. She's a good Scottish girl, Okay. So we're not going to enter into the reception hall with just party music. No, no, no. We got Uncle John with his full kilt and Scottish gear on and bagpipes, and we marched into the, to the reception hall with bagpipes playing, and everyone's happy, and we're so happy. Just the pinnacle of joy. A fun, a fun afternoon. It was in the afternoon. And then there came a point where we were getting ready to go. And the, the plan was this, um, we would change clothes and then we'd meet in the kitchen and then we'd walk out together, the kitchen of the church. And so I changed clothes and this, the, the excitement and the joy is just building. You kind of sense it, right? And I go into the kitchen to meet my new bride and there she is with her two sisters and they are crying. Not just kind of like, oh, kind of crying, they're weeping, they're so sad. I walked, on, walked in there full of joy, and yet there is my wife weeping. 
I vividly remember stopping in my tracks at that moment. It was, looking back on it now, I realize that this is God's incredible grace to me. I was being brought into a life of living in sadness. My wife's mom, Darcy's mom, had died several years prior to that from cancer. In that moment with her sisters, they were in deep sadness for a day that their mom should have been there for her. Since that time, we've lamented that many times together. The loss of her mom. She's missed lots of great things. And we miss her. The text we come to today is a lament. It's David's lament for Saul and Jonathan. I don't, I don't know how you approach something like this. I mean, even as I'm sharing this story with you, Maybe you're surprised and you're shocked to come to something like this, like I was when I walked into the kitchen. Maybe it hits you like a head-on collision. Whoa, where's this emotion coming from? Or maybe this is a very familiar place for you. You're maybe constantly in lament. Maybe life is a lament for, for you. You're familiar with suffering. Or maybe you don't even really want to engage emotionally this morning. Let me just invite you. Well, allow the Spirit of God to invite you, because He's here, and He wants to speak to you today through His Word. He's at work here. He wants to invite you today to come and learn to lament. And I realize there's a lot of people in this congregation who know how to lament well, and there's some of you who are lamenting well right now. And there's some of you who have never done it before and you don't even know what that means. Well, let's come to the word of God. Let's sit at Jesus' feet. Let's sit at God's feet and learn together today. Let me just pray for our time and ask him to teach us. Oh God, we need you. Cause our hearts to be good soil this morning. I need you. I'm weak. I'm inadequate. But you are great and you are strong. Come and work here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So that's what we're going to do today. Come and learn to lament with David. I want us to see three things that lament does. Three things. It'll be on your screen. These three things. Lament, first of all, lament thinks deeply about what happened. Second, lament moves us. And then third, lament loves what was lost. Lament loves what's lost. So first, let's look at that first one. Lament thinks deeply about what happened. Again, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and then specifically looking at verses 17 and 18. I won't read them for you again. Let me just give you a little bit of context about what's happening. David had just returned, just returned from what we talked about last week, which was that incredible, miraculous victory. They had lost everything, people, herds, stuff. David went after them, sent by God, and he miraculously recovered them all. They're all back. And then he receives this news. Saul and Jonathan are dead. Killed in a battle with the Philistines. He and his men at that point tear their clothes, which many of you already know is just a sign of great sorrow, great anguish of the heart. They wept, they fasted, they mourned for the rest of the day. Why would they do that? Because that's not the way it's supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be like that. 
The king of Israel was not supposed to die. The kingdom was not supposed to fall or fail. So, David then does something that we don't often see happening in modern society and maybe don't even understand what it is. He starts this lament. So let's just stop and talk about what is lament. What is a lament? I've read a number of really helpful definitions, but here's the best definition I could come up with. Um, I said, this is my first one, I thought, lament is an honest, thoughtful mechanism to grieve an abiding pain. That was way too sterile for me. So here's my, here's my second shot. Raw thoughts about something that's going to hurt for a long time. Raw thoughts about something that's going to hurt for a long time. Not physical pain, heart pain. Something that's going to hurt the heart. Now there are different ways to grieve. A lot of different ways to grieve. Even in the last couple chapters... Um, at the end of 1 Samuel and now here at the beginning of 2 Samuel, we've seen David specifically grieve in a couple ways. When, his, when all the people and all the stuff and all the herds were taken from him, he and his men wept until they could weep no more. That's that rush of grief that comes upon you where you just feel like your knees are going to buckle. Here, David has obviously taken some time. In our passage today, he's taken some time. It's thoughtful. It's a poetic picture of pain. It takes intentionality. It takes precision. He's sitting in the sorrow, experiencing it, thinking about it, rolling it over in his mind, considering it from different angles. There is a time for both types of suffering, both types of grieving. The explosive kind and the thoughtful kind. So, brothers and sisters, as one writer put it, let us not be shoddy in our sorrow. Let's be thoughtful about it. We have and we will encounter deep sorrow. Among the many ways that we're going to grieve the sorrows that come into our our lives, isn't it right for us, kind of, well, like David here, to offer up thoughtful grief to God? Let's think deeply about pain. Let's use words and pictures and honest, thoughtful expressions to engage what we feel. Let's not rush away from the hurt or from the loss. But let me ask an important question here. Why would we want to do that in the first place? Why would you want to engage the pain like that? If we think deeply about suffering, about our own suffering, as painful as it is, What we're doing is we're admitting that we are human and God is God. When we lament, we're effectively saying, we can't handle this. We can't do this. God, you have to do this for me. You have to help me in this. We need you. We need your power. We need your love. We need your grace. We need you. I need you right now to come and carry me through this because I cannot carry myself. I need you. We can think deeply about our suffering because we have one who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. You see, we as humans are weak, but he as God is strong. So strong that we had one sent to us, Jesus Christ, who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's what the Bible says about him in Isaiah 53. You don't have to bear your sorrows and your grief. Jesus bore them to the grave. 
so that all who trust in Him will enter into His everlasting joy. We can lament. We can. Those who trust in Christ can lament. We can think deeply about our grief because we admit that we need Jesus and we confess that we have Jesus and therefore we grieve. But we grieve with great hope. Lament thinks deeply about what happened. But I don't want you to miss this either. In verse 18, you'll notice that David wants this taught. He wants it recorded. He wants it spread around. It thinks deeply. Lament thinks deeply, but it thinks deeply together. Why would David do that? Why would he have it learned and taught to his people? Why would he have it written down and recorded? He wants to give them a model for what it looks like to grieve, and he wants to make expressions of grief normative, a normal part of life, to almost create a culture where grief is not hidden but engaged. Listen to this quote. One writer said this, Sorrow is holy ground, and those who do not learn to walk there know nothing of what living means. Christ community, I want us to be, and I really believe in a lot of ways we are, praise God, a church where there is a culture of lament. We're, we're not afraid to engage the hard things of life, to think deeply about them, to grieve them, to feel it, to sit in it, and yet grieve as those who have a great and living hope through Jesus Christ. That's holy ground. That's the ground that Jesus walked. And that's the ground where he meets us still. So that's the first one. Lament thinks deeply about what happened. And don't forget that last bit. Thinks deeply together. Second, lament moves us. It moves us. This is verses 19 through 21. David begins by inviting Israel to join him in grief. And I had mentioned this earlier, but if everything had gone right, Saul would have followed God. The enemies would have been defeated. The kingdom would have been established. Everyone would be at peace, in joy. They'd have their own home. They'd have their own stuff. But it didn't. The one that had been chosen by God to execute those plans is now dead. And his son, who was supposed to succeed him, is now dead also. So that glory that they were looking forward to, that is dead. It's embarrassing. If you're one of the people, try to put yourself in their shoes. You're one of the people of Israel at that time. This is embarrassing. This is shameful. This is painful. We have lost. We have failed. The dream is dying. The, the, the lament in verses 19 through 20 and 21, it looks like David is going into one of those PR crisis modes where he wants to shut down all types of communication so the, the news doesn't get out. But David already knew, even as he wrote this lament, that the news was out and it was spreading fast. Everyone across enemy territory knew this. There was a new praise song rising. Yeah, praise song. Not in Israel in Philistine, and the praise song was all glory to Dagon who defeated the enemy Israel. Throughout all the villages and all the cities, 
Praise Dagon who delivered us. Look at what he's done. We've defeated Israel. David wants the people to know that. And remember that. And say it again and again and again. Remember, it's recorded. It's supposed to be taught. We're supposed to learn this by heart and say it again and again. Remember that that praise song to that false idol is going on. Why? Why would he want them to remember that? Because he wants to stoke the flames of righteous indignation in their hearts. He wants them to consider the Philistine victory and feel in their souls, that is not right. He wants to provoke a response from this, to move them. And what is the response he wants? David wants them to see God's name mocked in the streets, that God's glory is at stake. He wants to move them for a jealousy for the glory of God. He wants to move them to seek restoration. Restoration of his people. Restoration of his place and of his reign and rule over that place. So, let's think about us. When we consider the wrongs of the world, isn't there a sense in which we ache for it all to stop or for restoration to come? The headlines. Michael was just praying about it about that massacre in New Zealand. You see that and you just think, what is wrong with the world? How could someone do this? Things just aren't right. And that ought to drive us to the one who will set things right. That's what lament does. Lament moves us. When we carry other people's afflictions with us, we feel the weight of their pain. We feel the weight of the pain of New Zealand of those people's families who were tragically lost. And we, under the weight of the pain that we feel, we bend our knees before a holy God. As one author said, he said this, don't hesitate to carry on your mind the suffering of God's people. Let's lament, Christ community, brothers and sisters, faith family, let's lament the suffering of the world and let that move you not, not to take up arms, not to take up weapons, but to raise your arms in prayer to God, to call out for him to come, to call his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's just think of some practical examples here, things that we might lament that might drive us to our knees in desperation for God. I don't know if I've ever prayed for a family as much as I have prayed for the Berkey family. But not just that. It's the world, the things going on in this world around us. The, the things in your lives, your marriages, your jobs, your physical pain, your suffering, those things. I, I hear those requests. I hear what's going on in your life. And I call out to God for you. Do you call out to God for one another? Or the world, our brothers and sisters in North Korea today, right now, that are suffering. Or my friends who are in jail in China right now suffering for the name of Christ. Does that cause you to ache? Oh, God, would you not come and set right the wrongs? Abortion. Does that not cause you to cry out to him to redeem life, to redeem the lives of the men and women involved in abortion and the children that are lost? I could go on and on. Big and small, near and far, this world is broken and lament drives us to God. 
to seek restoration. This past week, this past week, I was praying downstairs in my office. I don't know if some of you guys know this. We have offices downstairs in, uh, in the catacombs, dungeon-like areas of this church. Just joking. They're fine. They're great. I'm thankful. I was down there, and I was praying. I was praying with another brother, and we were calling out for different things, different things going on in the world. And in that moment, the Lord convicted me. He, he did something in my heart. And he said, you know what? This is what I want your life to be about. This is what I want you to be about as a pastor, calling down the blessings of God on your people. More than you need a space to work, you need a space to pray. And so I walked into the other room uh, after I got done praying with this brother, and I looked at Michael and Mitch, and I was like, guys, let me just run this by you. Don't know if this is cuckoo. Uh, I think I'm going to clear out my office. Not that I'm quitting. I'm not quitting. I'm not clearing out the office. I'm clearing it out, and I want to turn it into a prayer room. And they looked at me, and they said, that's awesome. I was like, let's get to work. So we moved all the stuff out of that room, and now that little room that was my office is now a prayer room. You're all welcome. I want you there. I want you there after the service. I will be there after the service, and I will pray. If you want prayer, I will be there to pray with you. If you just want to pray for the world, I will pray with you. But what in my heart, what the Lord was doing at that moment, he was saying, I, I believe more that I will be able to pray a good service into existence. I will be able to pray a good sermon into existence more than I will be able to work a good service into existence or work a good sermon into existence. I believe in the power of God through the prayer of his people that his kingdom will come. Lament drives us into that. It's this passage at work in my heart that moved me in that way. Praise God. I needed that work because I had spent the previous several weeks depending on my own strength, on my own effort, on my own work. I need God. We all do. The suffering of others causes us to bend our knees before him. Lament moves us. It moves us to pray for restoration. I'm serious about that prayer room, by the way. I really do hope you'll meet me there afterwards. If you'd like prayer, it's open for you. Just make that clear. Finally, lament loves what's lost. It loves what's lost. This is really the, the, the rest of the lament, verses 22 through 27. In this main portion of the lament, we see two different things. David remembers Saul and Jonathan for their skills and for their souls, for their character which is actually something quite gracious of David if you consider all the trouble that Saul has given him. It's a testimony to him, David, trusting God who was sovereign over Saul's life rather than taking things into his own hands. And then in verses 24 and 25 a little bit, David assigns lamenters, mourners, to be sorrowful over these two men who have fallen. He tells the women of Israel... You're in charge of weeping for Saul, for the things that he has done. And he takes it upon himself to weep for Jonathan, for his best friend. This whole, this whole lament just reverberates with David's deep love for his friend Jonathan. Back in verse 18, if you have an ESV Bible, there's a little footnote next to the word it, I believe. 
And the footnote will tell you that the title of this lament is the bow, as in like a bow and arrow. And in verse 22, you can see that Jonathan's bow was turned not back. It's the same weapon Jonathan first gave David when, when he had met him for the first time. And it's the same weapon that Jonathan had used to warn David of his father's murderous rage that sent David off into the wilderness. David and Jonathan's love was so deep, so profound, that David actually says it's better than the love of a woman. That is not a sexual statement. This is a statement about miraculous, abiding loyalty. Consider just for a second their, their relationship, who they are, what it was like for them. How is it possible to love the person who is your greatest rival? That's what Jonathan did. David was his greatest rival, was coming to take his throne, yet Jonathan loved him so deeply and loyally. How is it possible to love someone who's coming to take your rights and your privileges, your riches, your honor, everything that you're entitled to? Imagine being at work, working for a position for a long time, thinking that that position, that promotion or whatever it was, was promised to you, and all of a sudden, at the, at the 11th hour, at the last moment, some person comes in and takes your job. Wouldn't you be prone to want to get them back, to seek revenge, to work, your, to work your way into that position? That is not what Jonathan does. If, if we were Jonathan-like in that situation, we would have said to that person, you, you take the job. I want to do everything I can to support you. That's exactly what Jonathan does. He says to David this exact phrase from, phrase from 1 Samuel 23, you will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. I will be second. Jonathan is a perfect friend and he's gone. It's this true love between the best of friends that makes this lament so incredibly sad. Sorrow will be hardest where love is deepest. Matthew Henry said this, the more we love, the more we grieve. Yet David goes there. In this lament, he's going there emotionally and he cries and mourns. It's in moments like this that I think about that phrase that Tennyson said, um, is it better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all? How can we ever love if it's so costly? Why would we ever give ourselves freely to someone or something if we're just going to love it and then face unspeakable pain? On a basic foundational level, brothers and sisters, we need to admit that love is costly. As sweet and wonderful as love is, we will one day lose what we love. Some of us have faced that already in a variety of ways. Some of us will one day face that, but it will happen for all of us. But let me encourage you with this. We can love because loss is not the final word.
Jesus has the final word. When Jesus came to earth, he came out of love. The truest, most pure love that ever walked the planet. And though he was God Almighty, he came to earth to rescue people who loved all the wrong things. Who loved everything but God. Those are the people he came to love. That's me. That's you. Instead of not facing the sorrow and the pain, Jesus lamented it. And he truly loved us. And he moved. He did something about it. He gave his life. He went to the cross. He took on the cross all the sorrow and sadness and pain. He took on the cause of all that sorrow, sadness, and pain, our sin. He carried it with him to the cross and then into the grave. And three days later, he rose from the dead and showed that the sorrow and the sadness and death and sin has an expiration date. It will end. It will not last. Just like he rose from the dead, so will all who trust in him. We will rise and we will join his kingdom that will last forever. A kingdom of perfect joy and peace. No more sorrow. No more grieving. No more lament. Jesus gives us the strength and the power to love now and to lament now to face our pain, to move in response to it, and to deeply love because, and hear me on this, Jesus gives us the ability to grieve with hope, a living hope. He is the living hope because he rose from the dead. And all who trust in him, we will too. We can grieve. And we will grieve, but we will grieve as those who have hope. In 1882, a man named George Matheson, in the midst of deep sorrow over the circumstances of his life, wrote a song called, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. What a beautiful title. O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. It's a hope-filled lament. In closing, I just want to read... Uh, the, the final verse that captures really what I've just said. This is the final verse of the song. O cross that liftest up, liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. Jesus, we are looking to you and we need you. We are laying in the dust life's glory. Our lives are filled with bitterness and pain, but we know we have a great hope because you have risen from the dead. Oh God, help us to be a lamenting church, a church that depends on you, that trusts in you, Speak to us, Lord. We're listening. In Jesus' name, amen.